is Hinter Tales. I'm Rachel Dunstan Muller with stories of curious people, places, and events from the margins of history. It would be difficult to imagine a place less suited for human habitation than Triple Island. It's called an island, and you can find it as a dot on Google Maps if you search for it. But in reality, Triple Island is just three jagged rocks thrusting up from the sea about 28 miles west of Prince Rupert on the north coast of British Columbia. Aside from seaweed, there's no vegetation. The granite rocks are bare. When the seas are stormy, waves sweep over even the highest point, taking with them whatever isn't securely bolted to the rocks. And if all that isn't enough, thanks to its jagged shoreline and the lack of protected water, Triple Island is also extremely difficult to access, even in good weather. Clearly, this is not a place most people would choose to make their home. But these rocks are a significant navigational hazard for any vessel coming or going from the port of Prince Rupert. So in the early 1900s, Canada's Marine Department tried putting an unmanned acetylene beacon on the rocks, but it proved to be unreliable. And so, in April 1915, the powers that be committed to building a manned fog and light station on the largest of the three rocks. It took them more than a year to find contractors willing to take on this very challenging project, but finally the Snyder brothers agreed. They were all set to begin near the end of August 1916, until they tried to bring two launches packed with supplies through a sudden southeast gale. They were able to retreat without getting swamped, just barely, but the experience showed them the impracticality of trying to deliver materials or work through the fierce fall weather, so they wisely postponed the project until spring. But sea conditions around Triple Island are unpredictable in any season. At some point over an April weekend in 1919, three men and all their belongings were swept out to sea, and the missing men were never seen again, all while their more fortunate co-workers were away on shore leave. Later that same summer, a fourth man was crushed to death while trying to climb from a small workboat to a larger vessel. But the work team persevered in the face of these tragedies, and the light station was finally complete in the winter of 1920. An 80-foot light tower attached to a three-story rectangular bunker, all built from heavily reinforced concrete to withstand the sea. Coal bins, fuel tanks, and two rainwater cisterns filled the ground floor, The second floor was taken up with the engines and pumps and compressors that powered the light station, 
and the lightkeeper's nine hundred square foot living quarters was on the upper floor. And built into the deck on the roof of the forty-foot bunker were sluices, gaps in the half walls, to allow waves to drain. That's right, for waves to drain off the roof, a full forty feet or twelve meters above the rocks. As you can imagine. Life on this new light station was challenging, to say the least. The lightkeeper was hired to live on site year-round, sometimes with his family and/or an assistant that he paid out of his own meager salary, sometimes entirely alone. And if he needed to leave for any reason or wanted a vacation, he had to provide his own replacement and to pay for that individual out of his own pocket. For the first decade, there was no two-way radio on the island, which meant that the lightkeeper's only contact with the outside world was via a supply ship, which came with supplies and mail approximately every month or so, or when the weather allowed. Conditions on the island were brutal. In fact, it's hard even to know where to begin. The island itself was just a few rocks. It was tiny. When the weather was decent, there were a few tide pools to explore, but that was it. To get any kind of a walk, keepers and their families would have to do laps up on the roof deck. Inside, life could get a touch claustrophobic, especially in the winter, when heavy wooden shutters were bolted over the windows for months on end. As a defense against the season's endless gales, and if life in the gloom wasn't bad enough, the keepers and their families had to get used to the constant noise, since they lived directly above the machinery that kept the light station running. Imagine sleeping directly above a foghorn designed to be heard for forty miles. Not that light keepers did much sleeping. Despite the engines, in the early decades of the twentieth century, keepers were still required to check on the light and wind the weights every two and a half to three hours through the night. It was into these miserable conditions that Tom and Sophie Moran and their two-month-old son arrived on Triple Island in October nineteen twenty-nine. I wasn't able to find out anything about Sophie's life before 1929, but I do know that Tom was no stranger to the challenges of lightkeeping on BC's north coast. Tom spent his adolescence at the lighthouse on Green Island, and that in itself is an interesting story. Tom's family—father, mother, sister, brother. Emigrated from Liverpool to Victoria, B.C. in 1909, Tom's father John was a typesetter by profession. It was his job to set the cast metal letters for newspapers back home in England, and he resumed his trade in the cellars of the Victoria colonists once he reached Canada. But in those days, working in a composing room meant being exposed to toxic fumes. Rising from molten lead, which resulted in John waking up one morning, blind 
from irisitis. To his immense relief, his sight returned three days later, but his doctor warned him it was time to find a healthier occupation. As it happened, one of John's friends was a lighthouse inspector, and he was able to find John a position as a lightkeeper on Green Island. It was a hasty appointment. The family had just three days to pack their belongings and enough provisions to last them for six months before they boarded the ship that would take them to their new home. Now, Green Island lies just south of the Alaska border. It is BC's northernmost lighthouse, so it shouldn't be a surprise that it is also BC's coldest lighthouse. Despite this dubious distinction, the Marine Department only provided half a ton of coal each year for the furnace, about half of what was necessary to keep the family from freezing, which meant that John and his two sons were constantly on the lookout for suitable driftwood to buck and haul up to the house to burn in their wood stove. All this is to say that Tom, John's youngest son, had some idea what he was getting into when he accepted the position on Triple Island. Tom's wife Sophie, on the other hand, probably did not fully understand what she was signing up for. The reality was that though lightkeepers' wives did not receive any pay or official recognition, they were indispensable. They were very much their husband's unpaid assistants. Despite the fact that Sophie had a new baby to look after, her help was essential to running the light station. Which is why, on the morning of November 22nd, she was standing at the controls in the winch shed while Tom worked on the rocks below, preparing a load of wood to be hoisted up to the lighthouse. Now, the winch was a powerful machine, with a donkey engine, flywheel, clutch arm, spool of cable, and none of its parts were guarded. It was all open-geared. Tom had warned Sophie that it was extremely dangerous and had cautioned her to always wear his coveralls over her own clothes whenever she worked with the winch. But for whatever reason on this particular morning, Sophie was not wearing his coveralls, and as she worked, the flywheel suddenly grabbed the hem of her dress and wrenched her right off her feet. She tried to tear her dress free, tried to claw her way across the floor, but the thundering engine was too powerful, and she was dragged right into the gears. Tom heard her screaming and raced up the rocks to shut off the engine, but it was too late. The damage the winch had already done to Sophie was horrendous. Tom had to cut her clothing and her flesh free from the gears with a kitchen knife. She'd lost so much blood, he was afraid she wasn't going to survive. And despite their isolation, they were ridiculously unprepared for a medical emergency. They had no painkillers, no antiseptic, no bandages. So Tom ripped their bed sheets into strips, soaked them in watered-down Lysol, and bound her up as well as he could. Then he nursed her and waited. 
Since there was still no two-way radio on Triple Island, Tom could only pray that the next supply ship would come soon. But it was November. The weather was not favorable for visits. Nevertheless, to his immense relief, the Alberni showed up in the middle of a heavy gale a week later. The men used a stretcher to carry Sophie down to a smaller workboat, while the Alberni waited a safe distance off the rocks. The men had to wade through freezing chest-high water to get Sophie's stretcher safely into the workboat, and then when they reached the larger boat, they quickly put together a makeshift shelter for her out on the deck. The conditions outside were brutal, a gale in November, but maneuvering Sophie down through the narrow passages and doorways below deck would only have done her additional harm. Harm that she simply could not afford. Before steaming away from Triple Island, the Alberni's captain promised he would send a message through the commercial radio station in Prince Rupert within 24 hours, updating Tom on his wife's condition. While the light station didn't have a two-way radio, it did have a cabinet radio to tune into commercial broadcasts. For the next 24 hours, Tom cared for his tiny son and stayed glued to the radio. He listened to the news, to episodes of Amos and Andy, to endless commercials. But there was no mention of his wife. What Tom didn't realize was that the storm had forced the Alberni to take shelter overnight at a nearby fish camp, which meant that they were delayed in reaching Prince Rupert. By the end of that sleepless 24-hour period, without any news to tell him what was happening, Tom finally cracked. He had to know whether his wife had survived or if he was going to be raising their son on his own. So even though the wind was still blowing and the seas were still churning, he lowered his rowboat into the water, jury-rigged a mast and sail, carefully stowed his tiny son in the bow, and set sail. Setting out under those conditions, in a rowboat, with a baby, was beyond imagining. As a mother, I feel sick just thinking about it. But at this point, poor Tom was not in his right mind. His plan was to use the light from another light station, the lighthouse on Lucy Island, as his bearing on the way to Prince Rupert, a full 28 miles away. But in the stormy seas, the jury-rigged boat was quickly swept off course, miles off course. So Tom formulated a new plan. He would make for Green Island instead. It is difficult to fully convey the desperateness of Tom's situation. He was in a small, open rowboat on BC's north coast in stormy November weather with a baby aiming for a tiny island a further 20 miles away. There were closer islands where he could land, but they were tree-covered wilderness, 
and the only shelter he had was the rowboat itself. Not where you want to spend a stormy night with a baby. But angels must have been watching over Tom and his tiny son that day, because by desperately tacking, he did make it to Green Island, hours after setting out. And even better, if you recall, Green Island was where Tom grew up, and his parents still kept its light station. Tom made it to shore, handed his son to his mother, dried off, and flagged down a passing fish packer to complete his journey. And what did Tom find when he finally reached the hospital in Prince Rupert? His wife, alive and already in better shape. I'm not sure I would have wanted to be there, however, when Sophie learned just what her husband had risked to reach her bedside that day. Sophie recovered fully from her injuries, and the family was reunited on Triple Island. Once she was back, Tom carefully filled out a detailed workman's compensation form and mailed it off on the next boat. The reply came back as quickly as such messages could. Sophie worked for her husband, not the government. Her medical expenses were therefore his responsibility. Whether it was this indignity or just the generally brutal conditions of life on an isolated rock, Tom and Sophie decided together that it was time to get off Triple Island. I found conflicting dates in the records. They either left in April or September of 1930. But they did leave. Lightkeeping must have gotten under their skin, however, because they weren't out of the service for long. Tom's older brother, Arnold was also a lightkeeper for a number of years. But when he and his wife finally called it quits and instead purchased a poultry farm in 1932, Tom and Sophie took over their post on Egg Island. Egg Island was a step up, but just barely. It was every bit as isolated as Triple Island, but at least it was an actual island with a hundred acres of forest to explore. Tom and Sophie kept the lights on Egg Island for two years, then transferred to the much less isolated Lucy Island for six years, and finally completed their career with a 13-year post on Barrett Rock. Barrett Rock is in sheltered waters just a few miles south of Prince Rupert, a paradise as lighthouses go, a very agreeable place to finish their service on the coast. Tom and Sophie had at least one more child. I wasn't able to track down where their children ended up, but there are no more Morans in the list of BC's lightkeepers, so presumably the two-generation lightkeeping dynasty ended with Tom and Sophie. As for Triple Island, or... Little Alcatraz, as it's sometimes known, it's not quite the same place the Morans left back in 1930. While many of BC's lighthouses have been automated over the last decades, Triple Island is still a manned station, 
but the lightkeepers are no longer permanent residents. In the 1960s, a helipad was built on one of the rocks, and ever since, two keepers at a time have been helicoptered in to work 28-day shifts. The keepers no longer have to wind weights every three hours to keep the lights going, and in fact, their duties these days mostly involve light maintenance and weather reporting. With central heating, hot water, internet access, and all the other high-tech amenities of the 21st century, Triple Island is a much pleasanter place to work these days. Still, with all the light station's modern improvements, the sea itself hasn't changed. And every once in a while, it will send a reminder of its strength. A storm once put a log right through the third-story bathroom window. On another occasion, while a lightkeeper was watching a late-night movie, a wave smashed through a different window and swept the TV right onto the very startled lightkeeper's lap. In 1978, a Coast Guard mechanic was swept away by a sudden wall of water as he was working in the gully between two of the rocks. He was never found. These are just a few reminders that the sea is, and always will be, worthy of our respect. As are the lightkeepers everywhere, who risk their lives to keep others safe. My primary source for this episode was the book Lights of the Inside Passage by the late Donald Graham, who was himself a lighthouse keeper for many years. The history of lightkeeping on BC's coast is both tragic and fascinating. And if you're interested in the subject, I highly recommend both Lights of the Inside Passage and its companion, Keepers of the Light, also by Donald Graham. Together, they contain more stories than I could tell in a year. This episode of Hinter Tales was written, narrated, and produced by Rachel Dunstan Muller, with music and sound effects by zapsplat.com. Learn more about my work at racheldunstanmuller.com. <laughs>